morning, uh, the Bible describes that every human being has an appetite. And not just for food, but, but every human being has appetites. And according to the Bible, the two most significant appetites of a human being are their sexual appetite and their appetite to speak. If we look at just two verses, um, 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality is, is a sin against your own body. And, and why does it say flee? It doesn't say that about any other sin, but it says flee from sexual immorality because the sexual appetite of the human being is such that any human being can be ruined by where their sexual appetite leads them. Any human being. And if you think that you're above that, or if I think that I'm above that, we're, we're being um, confused. James 3 speaks about our words, and it says that uh, the verbal appetite, the appetite to speak, it says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, referring to the tongue. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And it says this in James 3, if anyone does not stumble stumble by what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. The, The two most restless appetites that we face as humans is our sexual appetite and our appetite to say whatever we think. And as we live in a post-1960s world, it's more and more culturally acceptable to live that way, to say that freedom in these areas is good. We swim in a, in a cultural fish tank that says, do what comes natural. And if you do what comes natural... You're the model citizen. But how does, how does biblical faith affect how we think about our sexuality? And how does biblical faith affect how we think about what we say? Does biblical faith critique our post-1960s culture? Our passage in Jew this morning primarily addresses these two topics that of our sexual appetite, and that of our appetite to speak about things that we know not, to speak wrongly about things. This is what Jude is going to address today. Jude is an aptly timed letter. As we conceive of biblical faith, how will we conceive of our sexual freedom and how will we conceive of our freedom of words? Turn with me to Jude, if you will. It's towards the end of your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, there's a little blue Bible in front of you under the the seat. And that uh, Jude should be on page 594 of that little Bible. The letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept 
for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So, a little bit odd, wouldn't you agree? Right? If you're opening up for family devotions in the evening and you say, all right, kids, turn, turn to Jude. No, Dad, not Jude. <laughs> right? Jude's scary. Right? Jude is scary. Jude's a bit odd. It's like the haunted book of the Bible. Right? Scooby-Doo was invented after they read Jude. And nobody ever picks these passages for their funeral. Eternal chains, gloomy darkness, punishment of eternal fire, blaspheming the glorious ones, disputing over dead bodies with the devil, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild ways of the sea, wandering stars, the gloom of utter darkness. And this is only the first half. The imagery of Jude is odd, and it is a bit difficult. But what you need to understand as we look at the book of Jude is that Jude is doing something different 
than what most of the New Testament authors do. Jude's writing a little bit differently. When you read one of Paul's letters, Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, Paul gives lengthy time uh, to to his his argument. He, He gives most of his space to laying out an argument, and then at certain points, he will add an example or a story to illustrate a point he's trying to make. So most of his letters, Paul's, are an argument. Some of it are examples. But Jude is the exact opposite. Jude gives you a little space for his argument, and then he packs it full of examples. And and most of what we just read are examples illustrating a fairly small argument. So let's first look at that argument that Jude makes. And then second, let's look at the examples that Jude gives us. So first, we'll look at his argument, which is fairly short. Jude's argument is this. I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I couldn't. Instead, I'm writing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, well, how are we not, Jude? You're indulging in sexual immorality and you're speaking things that you don't know anything about. That's how you're wavering. That's, that's the essence of what Jude is trying to say. Jude's trying to say that saving faith gives Jesus all authority over our sexuality and our words. Faith that saves, faith that is uh, commensurate with the common salvation gives Jesus all authority in our sexuality and our words. And Jude says, if you've deviated from the sexual ethic of Jesus, if you've deviated from the words that Jesus has revealed to us, then you've deviated from the faith and you've deviated from salvation. Jude begins, Jude begins by saying, God initiated your salvation. We're, we're not saved by what we do. In verse 1 it says, to those who are called. Brother and sister, if you're a confessing Christian, you do not confess Christ because of your own cleverness or because you're wise or, or because somehow you have the upper edge on anyone else. If you're confessing Christ as Lord, it's because you've been called. This word here, to those who are called, um, could be said those who are invited. Christian, if you are declaring Christ as Lord, it's because you've been invited, you've been invited to salvation. And, And what's the result of salvation? If we're just looking at verse one still, it means you're beloved in God means you're loved. Why would anyone want to be a Christian? Because as a Christian, you can know 
you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are loved by your Creator. And it says, and kept for Jesus Christ. And if you look at your footnote in this verse, um, it'll say, by, kept by Jesus Christ. Not only are you loved by God as a Christian, but you're kept safe by Jesus. Why is the gospel so good? It's because God initiates it. God gives his love lavishly. And Jesus keeps you. Why would you want to write about the common salvation? It's because it's so good. Salvation is sweet. But something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. The people to whom Jude is writing to, and we don't know precisely um, who these people are at the beginning, but, but these people to whom Jude is writing to, they've, they've learned about all of that. They've learned that salvation comes by an invitation. They've learned that to be saved is to be loved by your creator. And they've learned that to be saved is to be kept by Jesus. But what does that, what does that lead them to? Well, it turns out that certain people have crept into this church. Certain people have crept in and they've perverted this grace. Right? We just got done with the book of Galatians. And if you've been with us and you've had a pulse for the last couple months, you'll know that in the book of Galatians, there was also false teachers who crept in. False teachers crept in to this, this church in Galatia and they changed the gospel. The same thing's happening here. False teachers have crept in and they've changed the gospel. But in these two different letters, the gospel got changed in different ways. Right in the church of Galatia, how did the gospel get changed? Requirements were added to the gospel. Believe in Jesus and get circumcised. Right? Believe in Jesus and keep the ceremonial law. Then you'll be saved. But here, we have believe in Jesus and then you can do whatever you want. They're subtracting from the gospel. Believe in Jesus and then live in whatever manner would suit your appetite. And Jude is saying that that is not the true gospel. Notice how Jude starts this letter. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. You could translate that, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. When you come into salvation, Christian, you're not really free to do whatever you want. When you come into salvation, you're free to do whatever Jesus wants. When you come into salvation, uh, the Bible uses language that you've been purchased. And now you belong to Jesus. Originally, you belonged to your appetites. You were a slave 
to your appetites. But in saving faith, you can be a slave to a better master. You can be a slave to Jesus Christ. And that's the framework that Jude is using here. But he's saying that these false teachers crept in and now they're doing two things. They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. They're taking the grace of God and they're giving sexual license to live, to do, and to think however you would want as your appetite would lead you. They're doing that and they're denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're speaking things that they should not speak. Saving faith gives Jesus all authority over our sexuality and over our words. That's what Jude is saying. It's a pretty short argument, and we could pack up and be done, but Jude's a good pastor, so he makes it longer. And he gives us verses 5 through 13 of examples of, of how this is true. What is super interesting, and if you just read it one time through, you might miss this, but Jude says, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all given to the saints. So I'm writing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then where do his examples start? If you look in verse 5, where do his examples start? They start in the Old Testament. They start in Genesis and Exodus and Numbers. Jude doesn't see his faith as a new thing. Paul didn't see that either. Do you remember when we worked through Galatians? And, and uh, Paul said that uh, Christ proclaimed the gospel to Abraham and Abraham believed, and it was counted to Abraham as righteousness? Jude's saying the same thing, that the gospel was present back in Genesis. His examples are broken into two sections. He's using all these Old Testament examples. The first section primarily deals with examples of how saving faith gives Jesus all authority over our sexuality, and his second group of examples primarily illustrates that saving faith gives Jesus all authority over our words. Let's look at this first set of examples that saving faith gives Jesus all authority over our sexuality. There's three examples here. The first one is the Exodus. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who didn't believe. Jesus, after physically saving, afterwards destroyed. Why is that? If you're familiar with the gospel, you'll know that there are expectations of how we would respond to the gospel. That the gospel is freely given and salvation is accomplished entirely by what God has done. But the gospel invites a response. That when we see the salvation of Jesus, 
when we see that Jesus has saved us out of our sin, that we would repent and believe. We would turn from our sins and we'd believe in Jesus. And what Jude is saying here is that Jesus, after he saved these people out of Egypt, they didn't believe. They saw the salvation, but they kept trusting in themselves. They didn't repent. They didn't believe. And what was the result? They were destroyed. They were destroyed. Again, Jude is writing about a common salvation. We're writing about what must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? And we all can be, but it requires belief in the one who saves. Many of us have experienced physical blessing. God delivered the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, physically, but spiritually, they didn't get changed. The people came out of Egypt, but Egypt did not come out of the people. They needed a heart transformation. The examples continue here. And now we move on to verse 6, and there's these angels. And this is, this is I mean, this is good stuff, right? We have these angels <clears throat> who did not stay within their own position of authority. We could say that these angels did not stay in their own dominion, but they abandoned it. And these angels, he's kept in the chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What's this talking about? Most likely what it's referring to is a story in Genesis 6. <clears throat> in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 5, you have this fascinating little story. In Genesis 6, 2, it says, The sons of God, the sons of God, everywhere else in the Old Testament is usually referring to angels. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. The men weren't attractive, but their daughters, very attractive. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Angelic beings, Jude is saying here, due to, to sexual arousal and temptation, left their proper domain to pursue sexual immorality. And what's the result? Eternal chains of gloomy darkness. Verse, the next example, so, so that's our second example. The third example is, is similar to this. It says, just as. So just like these angels pursued sexual desire that was contrary to God's design, just as the angels did that, so did these people, these people from the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah and these surrounding cities in that area. They likewise, like those angels pursued different flesh, some, something that was different than them, Sodom and Gomorrah pursued 
sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Or if you took that literally, it says uh, different flesh. Different flesh than was intended for them. And these, Sodom and Gomorrah, after indulging in their sexual immorality, they serve as an example. How do they serve as an example? By undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now what's interesting about Sodom and Gomorrah is that usually we think of them as like, oh yeah, they got destroyed by fire. But often what we don't realize is that God had already saved them once. Just like Israel was saved out of captivity by God, Sodom and Gomorrah were saved out of captivity by God. Sodom and Gomorrah were taken captive by a bunch of mean kings. And they all go into captivity. And then Abraham finds out about it. And Abraham, in the book of Genesis, takes his whole household, packs on their swords, and they go out and they free Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, in the Genesis story, there's this appearance of a high priest. There's the appearance of a high priest of God who then interacts with Abraham in the presence of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like Israel was saved by Jesus, but they didn't believe, Sodom and Gomorrah were saved by God, and yet they didn't believe. The angels dwelt in the presence of God. They didn't need to be saved. They lived in the presence of God. And yet all of these, because of a sexual appetite that was not submitted to the salvation they received, they were destroyed. Saving faith, faith that will save, gives all authority to Jesus over our sexuality. The next examples transition, though. While Jude is talking about our sexuality in verses 5 through 7, next he talks about this denial of our Master and our Lord, Jesus Christ. In verse 8 it says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. In this manner, these people also rely on their dreams. There are two kinds of authority that we'll depend on in life. There's two kinds of authority. One authority is the word of God. The other authority is our own words, our own ideas. These people who snuck in and are perverting the gospel, that are perverting the faith, how are they doing so? On what basis? On the basis of their own dreams. And because of these dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. What does this word blaspheme mean? 
right? It's kind of a weird idea, blasphemy and the glorious ones. Blasphemy is the idea of speaking in a manner that is not proper for the object of which you speak. Blasphemy is the idea that, that you will speak something that should not be said about the being with which it is spoken. So to ascribe anything to God that is less than his divinity deserves is blasphemy. And to ascribe to creation anything that is only worthy of the creator, that too is blasphemy. But this says that blasphemy is the glorious ones. What's that? Chances are this is referring to angelic beings, the glorious ones. Well, how, how do you blaspheme a glorious one? Most likely, this is referring to the concept that angels, angels act as an intermediary between God and people to give the law, to give the word of God. If you go to Hebrews 2.2, It says that the angels put the law in place at God's command. So this blasphemy of the glorious ones, they're rejecting authority. They're they're rejecting the revelation that God gave through his messengers, through his angels. But it's interesting because then it moves to verse 9. This speaking any words they want to. Move to verse 9. And this is super bizarre. Like, this moves off the radar of weirdness. But when, Arch, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you're, if you're going back to your Bible trivia, and you're like, okay, like, I, I went to Sunday school as a kid, uh, I did Awana, uh, I, I've, I've gone to connection classes. I haven't come across this story yet. That's because it's not in the Bible. Uh, this is a story that comes from a book that wasn't preserved in the Bible. And in fact, other than it being quoted, it actually doesn't exist anymore. This story about the body of Moses. You're like, well, why is Jude quoting this? It'd be similar to if... if you, one of us quoted a favorite author to prove a point. If I quoted C.S. Lewis during a sermon, you wouldn't think that was super weird. Just like, yeah, C.S. Lewis made a good point there, so he brings it over. Jude's doing something similar. He's quoting a non-biblical source to make a point. And what's the point he's trying to make? Jude is taking the most powerful being he could think of in creation, the most powerful created thing that he could find an example for, Michael, the archangel. He's saying this powerful creature doesn't get to say whatever he wants. This powerful being doesn't get to just let loose when he feels like it. No, even this powerful being only says what is proper for him and God's authority. How much more should you and I only speak what is proper for us and the authority God's given us? Because then verse 10, it says, These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by those things that they don't understand. They speak ignorantly. 
And you might think to yourself, I don't, like, I'm not blaspheming angels. I'm not speaking about God in, in ways that I really shouldn't be. But you have to follow Jude's examples because they keep going. He has these woes, these three woes. Woe to them. Why? Why should we pity these people? Because they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves to Balaam's heir. They perished in Korah's rebellion. Let's just unpack those examples. We're going through lots of examples here. Um, I should have told everyone to buckle up before we got to this. But I thank you for laboring with me in this. I believe that when we walk away from this, um, we will each of us be more equipped to live the godly life that God has invited us to in the grace of God. What was the way of Cain? What was the way of Cain? Well, Cain offered a wrong sacrifice to God, but that wasn't the real issue. Anger. Anger was Cain's issue. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and Cain's offering, he had no regard. So, therefore, Cain was very angry. And his face fell, and Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And what was the result? Cain became an outcast from society. We can't say, even in our hearts, anything that we want to. Are you given to anger? Maybe your work environment frustrates you, your boss. Maybe you're, you get interrupted by your kids at home and you get frustrated, not angry. Just, I'm just frustrated. And what do you say? What, what words come to your heart? Or maybe, maybe you're talking to one of your friends and you just say, I just need time to vent. I'm not angry. I just need to vent. You're walking in the way of Cain. You're walking in the way of anger. That you've somehow given yourself authority to say words and to speak about things, whether in your heart or to someone else, that is not right for you to speak. Fundamentally, you're not trusting the providence of God in these circumstances to, 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 to entrust him. The way of Cain, the way of anger, leads to destruction. What about the error of Balaam? Well, it says here that for the sake of gain, what did Balaam do? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, Balaam was a diviner, and he got hired by a king to, to curse to curse the people of Israel. And he's like, no, I can't, I really can't, I really can't do that, guys. Oh, but that's pretty attractive what you want to pay me, so I'll just, I'll just see what happens. I'll just see what happens. And he goes along with it. And ultimately, he's not able to curse the people of Israel with his words, but he entices them through his advice to sexual immorality. So we're back on the sexual immorality. But how did it happen? It happened through his advice. If you look in Numbers, it says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. 
and the incident of Peor. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Does the prospect of gain, Balaam's error, does the prospect of gain entice you to say things that you might not otherwise? Do you want to impress your friends at school? Maybe you could insult uh, one of their friends and that would make you more popular. Do you want to gain the opportunity for advantage at work by joining your boss and speaking negatively about someone's performance? What you need to remember is that saving faith in Jesus gives Jesus all authority, not only over your sexuality, but over your words. These appetites that you feel in your sin, these appetites, Jesus has been given authority over them. Balaam's greedy advice led to sexual immorality and to the destruction of many of the Israelite people. The rebellion of Korah. What was the rebellion of Korah primarily about? The, primary, the rebellion of Korah was primarily about this, that Korah, Levites in God's service, were discontent. They were discontent. Cain was angry. Balaam was greedy. Korah was discontent. Numbers 16.11 says, What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Saying that to Korah. And this grumbling, what does this grumbling, these words lead to? The ground opens up and swallows them. And fire comes down and consumes those who remain. So the question of the rebellion of Korah is, does someone else's position of influence cause you to grumble? When your friend is promoted to be your boss, do you contemplate quitting? When your sister is given responsibility for you while your parents are out, do you make her life miserable? Grumbling starts innocently enough, but it leads to destruction. Anger, greed, discontent, these all produce words in our hearts and in our minds, and we, we speak things and we think things that are inconsistent with God's authority and standard in our life. Saving faith gives Jesus all authority over your words. Guard yourself from the rebellion of Korah. Guard yourself from the error of Balaam. Guard yourself from the way of Cain. What, what do we take away? What do we apply here? We've looked at all these examples and many of us are like, great, where do we go from here? Jude said it more simply than I could ever. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for the common salvation. Whether you're a believer here today or you're a non-believer, Scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in Jesus would never perish but would have eternal life. That whoever would believe in Christ would not perish 
All these examples of destruction we've just read serve us as a warning, as an example. What's that warning? What's that example pointing us to? That we can believe, we can have faith, and we can be saved. We can know the invitation of God. We can know the love of God, and we can be kept safe. By who? By ourselves? No. We can be kept safe by Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Master. Believer, you maybe have already placed faith in Jesus, but examine yourself. Does your faith give Jesus all authority in your sexuality? Does your faith give Jesus all authority in the words that you're saying? Is is it tempting when you're driving down the road to, to glance at the women walking on the sidewalk? Is it tempting to mutter in your heart when your spouse hasn't done the dishes again? Don't walk in the way of Cain. Don't perish in Korah's rebellion. Renew your trust that Jesus will provide for your every sexual need and that Jesus will provide for your every disappointment or discouragement. Jesus will provide and you can believe in that. But maybe you're not a believer here today. First of all, thank you sincerely for being here. This was not an easy message to listen to or to believe. But you've stuck it through. Thank you. Please know that that this message was primarily to people who claim to be Christians. But it has application for you. As Christians, we know that we've been loved by God and that we're kept spiritually safe for Jesus Christ. And this doesn't happen because we've somehow pleased God by our own efforts. This has happened because God, despite how bad we really are, has invited us in his love and in his kindness. And it could be that this morning, you sense God is inviting you to salvation, that God's inviting you to his love and kindness. If so, I'd love nothing more if you'd want to connect with me, uh, connect with the person sitting next to you in the pew, or connect with another one of our pastors here at church. We would love to share more with you about God's saving work. Thank you for laboring with me through these examples, but ultimately this main point, that saving faith in Jesus is wonderful, but it gives Jesus all authority in all parts of our life, especially the parts where we have these appetites. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the difficult but encouraging words you've spoken. That in this book of Jude, you would invite each of us to contemplate, de- uh, to contemplate deeper the holiness and the life you would have us live. I thank you for the, the mercy of the cross that purchases our salvation through faith alone and the grace of you alone, God. But that invites us to surrender fully to you in all areas of our life. I just pray for our, my friends and my brothers and sisters sitting here. Um, would you, in little ways this week, apply this passage to our lives so that we could look more and more like you and have deeper confidence in this common salvation? Amen.
Amen. Thank you, Andy. Let's let's thank him for uh, preaching the word to us today.